scary world. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, cults, conspiracies, mysteries, the supernatural, paranormal, or even just the generally weird, eerie, spooky, strange stuff that we want to talk about that week. Why is that, Sarah? Because it's our show and, and not, not yours. yours. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, stop. stop. Go, Go back, back. Start from episode one. Grumble Thorpe's in my mouth a little bit. Just a little bit. I mean, we're over 200 episodes now. You're going to want to take your time. You're going to want to follow the journey. You want to grow with us, learn with us, see the rise and fall of, of the quality of our show. Catch all the Easter eggs. There will be a pop quiz. You get hooked when you listen to that first episode and you hear us not remember the word quarantine. You really do. Or it was pre-COVID. It triggers you, and you never listen to and us you don't again. Listen to us ever again. But Ugh. you know what? It's a good litmus test. That's for okay. If you can handle yeah. the rest of the show. Oof, that's true. Because if you're not triggered by us not remembering the word quarantine, you might be triggered by the episode where we say the word abortion 47 times. You know that was pro. That was pre. That was the back overturning when we still, of Roe v. Wade. We still lived in a Roe v. Wade society. Oh, America. Oh, talk um, about the rise and downfall of yeah, you know, something. It's, it's our journey is just like the story of America. <laughs> Don't rope me in with that country. <laughs> Don't do that to me. Don't you dare. Um, we're just, you know, we're setting it out there. If you, I mean, if you've started from the beginning, like you're supposed to, and you're following along, we have a large UK following, so that's where we're going to be American refugees too. Yes, we're going to run away. <laughs> They already said they would take us. They did. So, bye. So, we're ready to be. We're going to fall through expat. a dimensional portal behind a Burger King and land in the UK. But thank God we're going to bring our podcasting equipment <sighs> and we'll still get a slight Wi-Fi signal where we'll be able to continue to podcast and broadcast this show to America. Sorry, America. We're bantering. You've got a show tonight. Not tonight that this episode comes out, but tonight that we're recording. Yeah. A one-act festival. It is. And it is. isn't it also this coming weekend? Yep. It's this coming weekend. Cool. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's just a tiny community thing in a little neighborhood theater. You know. It's cute. It's a time. I am also going to be a part of a play reading at one of the days of the Philadelphia Women's Theater Festival. Nice. So that's exciting. It's August 6th, a Saturday between 2 to 4 at some point. The reading that I'll be doing will happen. So that's really fun. If you're in Phil in the Philadelphia area, the Women's Theater Festival has been going on for a few years now. And Shannon Hill is the, yeah. I believe her title's artistic director. She's a former guest. Yep. Former guest, guest. Former guest, current friend. Exactly. Right. And uh, soon to be director. She's directing the staged reading. So yeah, so that's fun. That's exciting. That's coming up. I'm more excited about that than the One X. Um, I'm looking forward to, I already told you right before we started recording, I got an email getting some ice cream. Ugh. And I just got ice cream at Zaz yesterday, but that was before I got this email today. So Zaz is a local ice cream chain. There are a few local ice cream places in Philly that are great. Weckerly's is one I eat from a lot. Yeah. But Zaz I get when I come over here because it's right it's around the corner. It's my neighborhood ice cream chain. Yes. It's right over by Sarah's house, which is right over by Mary Angela's house, which is where we record. And um, I got an email from them that's like, hey, tomorrow is National Ice Cream Day. 
And all weekend, we're doing custom ice cream sandwiches. Here are your cookie choices. Here are your ice cream choices. And then you get a rolled topping that we roll around the edges of the cookie. Yup. And then, like, we're open 12 to 10 Saturday and Sunday. And I was like, well, I know what I'm doing after recording and before going over to the theater. I'm getting at least one ice cream sandwich. But I might eat that ice cream sandwich at Zaz and then buy a second ice cream sandwich to eat on the way to the theater. That's how excited I am about these ice cream sandwiches. I'm like, once that show is done tomorrow, my Sunday is open. I might walk to Zaz and get something. And get yourself an ice cream, Sammy? So something else, if you do, I don't know if we have any listeners other than Mary Angela, whose house we're sitting in, who live in this in the neighborhood. Uh, in the neighborhood. Sure. But if you do live in the Germantown, uh, Mount Airy area, there is the cutest little plant farming supply store, garden store that just opened up right down the street from Zaz, mm. and it's called Farmer John, J-A-W-N, which is a Philly Stop! thing. Stop! I love it. Um, But their whole focus is a community focus of helping people in the community learn how to grow their own food, learn how to grow in your concrete Philadelphia backyard. They're giving classes. Uh, I was talking to the woman. I believe she's the owner-operator. It's also African-American, female-owned which is super dope. Love it. But she's hosting a class about foraging and how to like walk through the Wissahickon and find edible mm-hmm, things. things. Yeah. She does classes. They just did a class for house plant safety and your pets. So mm-hmm. like what's safe for your pets to be around, what isn't. And then they made homemade dog biscuits. Um, she's having a class for gardening in the fall and like what to do with your garden when it. it comes fall time. I love that. And... Started yesterday and going on in the weekend uh, for the summer. Their their little area is literally a garden, but also has a seated area. And they're making it a beer garden. And nice. so there's a little beer garden out there on Fridays and Saturdays where you can go and you can talk to them about plant stuff and have a beer and just sit out there. And it's really nice. I love that. You can even walk down and get some Zaz and then take your ice cream over and get a beer. Beautiful. Yeah. It's super cute. Yeah. Really cute stuff in the neighborhood. We love community places like that. We support community places like that. And I need that because I need to figure out what to do with my garden for the fall. I'm currently reading a book right now with Val called City Homesteading. And it's all about being able to do shit like that in the city. I have another one that's very similar called Urban Homesteading. You've got to check out this place then because they've got like – they have a like stackable – to a degree, self-watering like mm-hmm. garden system where you can just you stack it up. Top and the water drips down to the water. And it yep. sits. And then her other thing she teaches is about how to grow symbiotic plants so you can put a ton of plants in a small space, but they won't choke each other out mm-hmm. because they complement each other. Yeah. So then you can maximize your tiny okay. amount of space. Isn't it? Ugh. Fantastic. It's so smart. So good. So good for the community. When I was um, on vacation last week in Virginia, so me, my brother... My sister and my partner, the four of us, rented, like, a farmhouse in Virginia, um, like, halfway between here in Philly and Charlotte, which is where my brother and sister live. They live in Concord, which is outside of Charlotte. (laughs) But, yeah, I picked some wild blackberries while I was there, and I felt pretty confident because I was like, okay, blackberries, wild blackberries used to grow a lot behind my house where I grew up. Um, which is in North Carolina, which is the state just below Virginia, if you are not familiar with American geography, which I don't blame which you. that is okay. I, if you gave me an empty map 
with just the states with no names on them, I would struggle to name all of them. I'm not going to lie. It's the ones in the middle. It's all the ones that, you know, had trigger laws. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Not when it comes to that. Not when it comes to geography. And I used to be able to name all the states and all the capitals. Not anymore. But anyway, um, yeah, I got to pick some wild blackberries. and There's nothing like it. It was really cool. And I felt very one- with the earth. And that's very, like, a thing, ugh, gosh, not to get too, like, you know, hippy-dippy or whatever, but that's really a thing I've been thinking about a lot lately. And, like, I think about it in general, but just more and more the older I get, the more I'm just like, okay, to me, like, self-reliance isn't just, you know, capitalism and my money, but also, like, I want to learn how to grow my own food and, like, how mm-hmm. to not depend on yeah the system yeah. because, oh, God, it's so fucked <laughs> There has been nothing. My garden is fruiting, and I've already had three cucumbers for my cucumber plants. And Did you send me a picture of a squash? Squash. The most beautiful of beautiful squashes. It was just, it's gorgeous. And it fell right off the vine in my hand. Mm -hmm. We've got bell peppers coming in, a shit ton of tomatoes. There's just nothing like cutting open and eating the food that you grew, you put in the ground, and you pulled off the vine yourself. Super exciting. So exciting. I love it. Yeah. I want to grow some leafy greens for, like, salads. And it's so easy to do. Mm -hmm. And they're, like, if it's not, like, a head, like, a head of lettuce, if you grow, like, a leafy lettuce, like a romaine or something, like, you can break leaves off and just leave it growing. You don't have to. You can, but you have to watch it Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't, um, forgetting what the term is, but it, it has a shelf life yep. in the ground mm-hmm. to a degree where you can pull off so much or you typically you can cut it down once and it'll grow again. You can get maybe two or three cuttings mm-hmm. before it. I want to say I can't remember what and the you phrase pull it is. Out and you chop that shit up and you compost it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm and then you use it to fertilize your plants next year. Done. I'm ready to I do love it. shit like that. Yeah. I'm ready to learn things. Yes. Um, yeah. All about self-reliance so you can go live in the middle of nowhere where no one will fucking bother me. And not ever look at the internet or the news or anything ever again. Just live on my own. Ain't that the dream? In the woods and eat the food. It is. Would you live on my compound with me, Sarah? I mean, yeah, I think we probably would. We'd want our own house. I know. And that's the idea. I told you the idea with my con. Everybody has their own house. Yeah. Yeah, we need our own space. We live in the same house. Everybody, I just want to live on the same property and we can all grow food together. Yeah. And we can like sit at a big table and eat dinner together and then go back to our own houses. Yeah. Don't you love that? We have to make sure it's not all white people though, because that's not a good look. No, that's a big part of it. It can't be all white people. That's bad. To be be honest, Sarah, it's you and Charlie. You and Charlie are the only white people. Oh my God, we made the the list. You're the only ones invited to the cookout. We made the list. To the cookout compound. Yes. Um... We ma- it's mainly because of Charlie. I understand. Everyone loves him. <laughs> what a thing to say. Everyone loves him. Um, but yeah, like I, yeah, that's a big thing that I want to do. The list. I love that. Well, maybe one day we'll have a compound called Dead Time Stories. Hey man, we're talking about it on the podcast. We're gonna make it happen in five or ten years. Hey man, that's actually not a long time. It's really not, Sarah. We've known each other for more than five years. I know. We've had this podcast for almost five years. That's true. We've known each other for seven years. Because I we meet twenty fifteen. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Gosh. Mm hmm. Yeah. And this podcast is four years old. I was talking about that yesterday with Josh Hawkins, a previous guest of the podcast, who also is on his own podcast, yes. Blurred Bar, and he has one called Your Cup of Tea that he does kind of seasonally. I always remember Josh Hawkins because of. Jim Hawkins. Jim Hawkins. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Jimmy. Yeah, no, he's a great dude. He is getting married next month. Wow. Dr. Laura. Everybody's doing that. 
Everybody's getting married or buying a house, man. I want one of those things right now. It's a house. I want a house it's right a house. now. I know that's I want a house right want. now. Yeah. That's a good a spot as any. Now it's we're getting into scary territory. Yeah, Home we're, buying. We're getting, ah! we're getting into real sad stuff. Ah. So yeah, let's 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 move into our stories, I guess. Hey Sarah. Hey Stephanie. Hey Leslie. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? first you want me to go first you go first okay. i went first last week i'm talking about the pop the i don't know how to say it because they're french so we're gonna say it different every the time. potpourri the Pepe sisters the pepin sisters the pippin sisters the we're talking about christine and leah papin we're gonna call them the papin sisters because we're american yeah makes sense it's p-a-p-i-n i'm sure it's like papin i don't know it's actually pronounced p- papa <laughs> <laughs> It's actually pronounced Pagan, but the G is silent and not there. So Christine and Leah Papin are the two younger of three sisters altogether. It's their names sound really familiar, but that's you as might far have heard as about I, them on another podcast or something. That's I as hope, far as I got, I hope we haven't talked about them on this podcast. I'll, I'll let you know. Isn't that a thing that? <laughs> It's only happened twice. 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 Okay. I knew it happened one and time. It has only happened with guests. We've never done Got it. it. Okay. <laughs> I knew about the one time about the guests. I didn't realize it happened two times with, with guests, but that's cool. We're not playing them on blast. No, that's fine. But that's part of the pop quiz. At the the Pippins. So. <laughs> the Puppy Sisters. So they were born in the early 1900s. Christine was born in 1905 and Leah was born in 1911. They also have an older sister named, it starts with a fucking E and we're going to talk about her. Oh, Amelia. Cause she's not important. I mean, she's important. I shouldn't say that. I was like, you said, we're going to talk about her. We are going to talk about her. Cause she's one of the three, well, she she's bad? one of the sisters, but she's not the one that the story is about. The okay. story is really about the younger two. Okay. But we're going to start with their parents now. So they're all French, if you couldn't tell by their Papine. Papa. Pepine. Uh, and I will give some some content warnings before we move forward. So we are going to talk about some murder. We're going to talk about rape. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about incest. And those two make like a quick appearance. Why do those three always go hand in hand? <sighs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know, because one, you know, I guess if you, I mean, if you, if you do one, you wanna, it usually you leads somebody, to another. Right? And know? one of them, typically, if you're doing it, you're automatically doing the other. So they were, their their family was in Le Mans, France, and their parents were Gustave and Clemence. All right. And Gustave, uh, Gustave Papin and Clemence Papin, nay, Delray. You know, so that's her maiden that's name. That's her maiden name. <laughs> So, Clemence and Gustav, like, they dated for a really long time, and she was never really, like, super committed to Gustav, right? right. She was like, I got options, and, like, I'm going to do what I want, but Good Gustav for her. was like, marry me, Clemence, and she was like, meh. Uh, and it was said for a long time that she was kind of a lady around the town, uh, and it is very well established that she was having an affair with her boss. Ooh. Specifically. Ooh. 
manager at her job. Ooh. And uh, Gustav was like, marry me, marry me, Clemence, marry me. And she was like, like, I'm too young to live my life. Yeah. And then Clemence got pregnant. Like, you know, happens sometimes. Yep. And she agreed to marry Gustav. Now, it's not known if the baby was Gustav's or not. Yep. But she was like, all right, I guess I'll get married now because at least I'll have somebody to take care of this baby, right? But she was still going to her job and she was still... Sleeping with her boss. Sleeping with her boss. So it was probably the boss's baby? It's possible. Was it boss baby? (laughs) Is that... Is is that Kelsey Grammer? Who is boss baby? Alec Alec Baldwin. Baldwin. Isn't that the premise of Boss Baby, this story? I've never seen it. I don't... (laughs) Isn't that the premise of Boss Baby? I've never seen it. I love that for you. I love that reaction to this story. Um, That's what Boss Baby's about, right? I don't don't think it is. I know that he's a baby and a boss, but I don't really understand why. I'd watch it with you. He's probably... Because he's the boss's baby, but they forgot the apostrophe. (laughs) <laughs> they were like, we're on the poster? Go. Yes. They just, it's actually a fun story. It's actually a typo. Um, it's supposed to be boss's baby. Uh, but then they ran with it. Don't worry. Someone did lose their job about it, though. Oh, no. Someone did lose their <laughs> job about it. So Clemence is now married to Gustav. And um, just a few months after getting married, they have their first baby, Amelia. Okay? Because she was already pregnant when mm-hmm. they got married. Mm-hmm. They had their second baby in 1905, which was Christine. And that was the second baby. And her mother was like, Clemence, she was really not very motherly to any of her children. Like, she wasn't really into being a mom. She That's was into not really it. a surprise, though. Sh- I feel like <laughs> she liked to go around. She liked to do her thing. She liked to live her own life. And she wasn't really into, like, momming it up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so she actually ended up giving Christine to one of Gustav's sisters to like raise. She's like, can you just take care of this baby? Cause like, oh, being a mom. Am I right? But she kept Emil. But at the time she kept Amelia. At that point, she still had Amelia. Oh no. Christine was actually really happy with her aunt and uncle. So like she didn't have a problem. She was like, that's fine. I'm getting more love and affection in this home. Right. than I was getting in my own home. Um, and then Leah was born September 15th, 1911. She was giving, given to a maternal uncle. So they still, they kept Amelia at this time. They gave Christine, the middle one, to one of Gustav's siblings. And Mm -hmm. then they gave Leah to one of Clemence's siblings. And they were like, we're already trying to take care of like the one kid. Uh, now this is where this, this is like the worst part of the story in my opinion. So in 1912 when Amelia was 9 or 10 years old, it's alleged that Gustav raped Amelia. Um, now remember, this does not make it any better in any capacity, but remember like she also might not have been she was his the daughter. Boss baby. So I don't know if part of it was like, like this anger about her like maybe not being his kid. Um, I don't know, but he took that out on her. And then to make matters worse, uh, Clemence was like, oh, like our daughter, my daughter seduced my husband. Of course. My child's daughter. So in order to deal with that, she sent Amelia, who was the only one that was at home at that time, uh, to a Catholic orphanage. And it was like a really intense, like brutal Catholic orphanage. And soon after, um, after, like, 
the uncle that was taking care of Christine died and the aunt that was taking care of Leah died. They just sent all the kids to the or to the boarding school, like to the orphanage by the the Catholic orphanage. They're just like, you know what? You take care of them because our marriage is falling apart. Because when they had the third baby, Gustav was like, you know what? We're going to move to the country because <laughs> I don't know if any of these kids are mine. Like, I don't want you fucking your boss anymore. And Clemence was like, you know what? Literally, I would rather fucking die. She was like, I'm I not doing it. Myself. Yeah. I'm not moving to the countryside. And then they were like, maybe we should just get a divorce. Let's put our children in the orphanage <laughs> and call it quits. Uh, and we'll just walk away. They divorced in uh, 1913, Clements and Gustav. All right. In 1918, Amelia, the oldest one who was in the the um, orphanage, she decided she was going to go to a convent. She was like, you know what? I'm going to go be a nun because fuck this. <laughs> I'm out. Yep. That's uh, fair. And that effectively ended her relations with her family. As far can be ascertained, she lived the remainder of her life in the convent. That's all that we have about Amelia. You know what? Good for her. She right? got away from that toxic family. She did. So that leaves us then with the two younger girls, Christine, Christine and Leah. And Leah. Pa- Papin. 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 So they're in the orphanage, the two of them. And they, uh, Christine, so she's the middle child, but the older of the two that are in the orphanage. Christine was like, maybe I'll become a nun because that seemed to work for our older sister. Like, she's really, really into it. Um, At this point, she still had a relationship with her mother, even though she was in the orphanage. Now, Amelia, who was like off being a nun, she was like, fuck this. Like, she didn't deal with her family anymore. She was gone. So while these two were still in the orphanage, like, they still had contact with their mother. Okay. Mm -hmm. And when... Christine was like, I might become a nun. Clemence was like, absolutely not. You are not becoming a nun because you need to make money. Oh, no. And you need to repay me, your mom. You need to send me some of that money. So you need to get a job. Okay, you're getting out of orphanage age. You're getting into working age. Oh, no. And it's time for you to do this. So it's time for you to get a job. So she had trained in a lot of household duties in the convent. Like, she learned how to clean house. When she was like, you know, it's a it's a Catholic orphanage. So like yeah. I kind of think like I think that the the convent and the orphanage were like kind of attached or they were sister organizations in some capacity. Um, because that's where she was learning to like basically keep house. So her mom was like, you know what? You're getting a job as a maid. You're gonna be a live in maid. You're gonna go live in somebody's house. They're gonna take care of you, do whatever, and you're gonna send money back home. Cool, capiche, got it, that's what you're doing. And you're like, ugh, gross, right? So Christine was described as a hard worker and a good cook, but she could be insubordinate at times, right? She got a little mouthy. She got a little salty. Mm -hmm. Who who wouldn't? I mean, yeah, she's been dealt the worst hand. She's been dealt a shit hand, right? And then Leah, which is the younger sister, Leah was described as, like, very quiet, very shy, introverted, and she was much more obedient than Christine, but she was also, like, less intelligent than Christine. So she mm-hmm. was more willing to just kind of, like, put her head down and follow orders. But employers were content with their work. Um, but Clemence was never satisfied with the pay. She was always trying to make them find better, better work to send her the money, to give money back home to her, the mom. Mother of the year. Yes. 
The sisters worked as maids in various homes in Le Mans, which is where they lived, and they preferred to work when, uh, together whenever possible. They were always trying to work like in the same household so they could at least work together and be together as sisters. In 1926, Christine and Leah found live-in positions as maids at 6 Rue Bruyere for the Lancelin family. So it was uh, Monsieur René Lancelin, who was a retired solicitor or a salesman, his wife, Leonie Lancelin, and their younger daughter, Genevieve, which uh, I think I heard that the French say, like, I can't say it. It's like Genevieve. Like, it's really sexy. But mm, G- yeah. Genevieve. Yeah, I don't know. But we're American, so she's Genevieve. And even that's being generous. Yes. But they had an older daughter, too, but she was, like, married and didn't live with them. So it was the three of them in this house, right? And they hired Christine first. Christine worked with them for probably, like, um, like three months. And she was great at her job. They loved the work that she did. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, Christine, if we could only have two of you. And she was like, fun fact. It's funny that you say that. I have a younger sister who is also a maid and it would be pretty cool if we could, you know, maid together. Like, you know, we need somebody else working here. And they're like, okay, you know what, Christine, you've got it. So Lancelin, which is the mom, hired Leah as a chambermaid. And the two girls dedicated their lives to working long days doing the job. However, some years after Christine and Leah started working for the family, Leonie developed depression and the girls became a big target of her mental illness. So mm. she took out a lot of like her own issues on her two maids. Oh. At the time, class-wise, like it wouldn't be wildly unexpected. They took because they took quote unquote like good care of the maids. Like they had nice rooms, like with heat, which yeah. that was like very rare, like how well they were taken care of. They had very nice clothes. But they worked six and a half days a week. They got half a day off on Sundays because they had to go to church. But after church, they had to come home and resume their their working duties. But they didn't have, like, even though they were well taken care of as far as, like, all of their needs, there wasn't really, like, a friendly or familial relationship Mm -hmm. between them and the, uh, like, the Lancelins, the family that they were taking care of. It was really just an employer. Yeah, it was really just an employer. And as her depression worsened, like, her behavior and her treatment of the girls working for them, working for the, sorry, excuse me, the the Papen sisters that were working for them, like, that abuse worsened over the years. At its peak, she would, like, be physical with them, where she would, like, Mm. push them, um, like, slam somebody's head into a wall. Like, she would get physically violent with them. Someone should call OSHA. Well, that's not what they did. (laughs) On the evening of Thursday, February 2nd, 1933, Renee Lancelin was supposed to meet Leonie and Genevieve for dinner at home, uh, at the home of a family friend. Leonie and Genevieve had been out shopping all day, and when they returned home that afternoon, there were no lights on in the house. The Papen sisters explained to Madame Lancelin that the power outage had been caused by Christine plugging in a faulty iron um, to do housework, and that that made the power go out. Madame Lancelin became irate and attacked the sisters on the first floor landing. Christine lunged at Genevieve and gouged her eyes out. The daughter, the little girl, she jumped on her and she... She wasn't even trying to fight with them. No, she was just The little girl was just an innocent bystander. Leah joined in the struggle and attacked Madame Lancelin, gouging her eyes out as ordered by Christine. So they 
tore out the eyes of the mom and the daughter who were still alive. Yeah, of course. Because you can live through that. point in the story. Christine ran downstairs to the kitchen where she retrieved a knife and a hammer. She brought both weapons upstairs where the sisters continued their attack. At some point, one of the sisters grabbed a heavy pewter pitcher and used it to strike the heads of both uh, both of the Lancelin women, both the mom and the daughter. In the midst of the rage, they mutilated the bottoms of the bottoms and the thighs of the victims. What? Experts who later responded to the scene estimated that the attack the attack lasted about two hours. What? This was not a few minutes. Like this, this fight went on for hours. Oh my gosh! Sometime later. Renee Lancelin returned home to find the house dark. He assumed that his wife and daughter had left for the dinner party and proceeded to the party himself. Oh, no. When he arrived at his friend's house, he found that his family was not there either. He returned to his residence with his son-in-law at approximately uh, 7 o'clock at night, where they discovered the entire house still dark except for a light on in the Papen sisters' room. Bleh. The front door was bolted shut from the inside, so they were unable to enter the house. The two men found this suspicious and went to the local police station to summon help from an officer. Together with the policemen, they responded to the Lancelin home where the policeman made entry into the home by climbing over the garden wall. Once inside, he found the bodies of Madame Lancelin and her daughter Genevieve. They both had been bludgeoned and stabbed to the point of being unrecognizable. Oh, my gosh. Madame Lancelin's eyes had been gouged out and were found in the folds of the scarf around her neck. Uh. And one of Genevieve's eyes was found under her body and another on the stairs at the other end of the hallway. Uh. Thinking the Papen sisters had met the same fate, like they didn't think that they they did it. They thought they were also dead. The policeman continued upstairs only to find the door to the Papin sister's room locked. After the officer knocked but received no response, he summoned a locksmith to open the door. Inside the room, he found the Papin sisters naked in bed together and a bloody hammer with hair still clinging on it on a chair nearby. Why are they naked? Upon questioning, the sisters immediately confessed to the killing. Well, I mean, yeah. The sisters confessed to the murder immediately. However, they claimed it had been committed in Mm self-defense. During the trial, they protected each other and each confessed sole responsibility for the crimes committed. Both of them were like, no, it was totally my fault. So the sisters were placed in prison but separated from each other. And Christine became extremely distressed because she couldn't see Leah. Like, And remember, Christine is the older one. Mm -hmm. At one point, prison officials relented and allowed the two sisters to meet. Christine reportedly threw herself at Leah, unbuttoning her blouse, begging her, please say yes, which suggested to everyone that they were having an incestual Mm. sexual relationship. In July of 1933, Christine experienced a fit, that's in quotes, or an episode in which she tried to gouge her own eyes out and she had to be put in a straitjacket. She then made a statement to the investigating magistrate in which she said that on the day of the murder, she had experienced an episode like the one that she had in prison and that this is what precipitated the murders is Mm, that she went into a a fit and that Leah was just like, oh, shit, like... 
I guess I will like, fight too. Right. The sister's chosen lawyer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity on behalf of both of them. Christine and Leah demonstrated signs of mental illness, such as limiting eye contact and staring straight ahead, appearing to be in a daze. The court appointed three doctors to administer psychological evaluations of the sisters to determine their mental state. They concluded that the two had no mental disorders and deemed them sane to fit the st- to fit. Uh, excuse me, sane and fit to stand trial. What? They also believe that Christine's affection for her sister was based on family ties, not an incestuous relationship, as others had suggested. Huh. I don't. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. However, during the September 1933 trial, medical testimony noted a history of mental illness in the family. Their uncle had died by suicide while their cousin was living in an insane asylum. The psychological community struggled and debated over a diagnosis for the sisters. After much consideration, it was concluded that Christine and Leah suffered from shared paranoid disorder, which is believed to occur when groups or pairs of people are isolated from the world, developing paranoia in which one partner dominates the other. Yeah. This was especially true of Leah, whose meek personality was overshadowed by the obstinate and dominant Christine. After the trial, jurors took 40 minutes to determine that the Papin sisters were indeed guilty of the crime of which they had been accused. Leah thought that uh, thought to be under the influence of her older sister was given a 10-year sentence. Christine was initially sentenced to death at the guillotine. Wow. Although that sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. Whew. The separation from Leah proved to be too much for Christine, and her condition deteriorated rapidly once they were apart. She'd written various letters pleading to be with Leah. However, her wish was not to be granted. She experienced bouts of depression and madness, eventually refusing to eat. Prison officials transferred her to a mental institution in Rennes, hoping that she would benefit from the professional help. Still separated from Leah, she continued to starve herself until Mm -hmm. she died of starvation until she starved herself Wasted to death away. on may of 1937 Ugh. leah fared better than christine serving only eight of her 10 year sentence due to good behavior in prison after her release in 1941 she lived in a town called nantes where she was joined by her mother oh no uh she assumed a false identity and earned a living as a hotel maid, she was like, I know how to do that, but I don't want anybody to know who I mm-hmm. am because why would she? Yep. Some accounts state that Leah died in 1982, but French film producer Claude Ventura claims that he discovered Leah living in a hospice center in France in 2000 while creating the film In Quiet Sous de Pépin in English in search of the Papin sisters. The woman he claimed to be Leah had suffered a stroke, which had rendered her partially paralyzed and unable to speak. And say, yes, this is me. This woman died in 2001. And then it says the sisters are buried together, but I'm like, which one? The one one? that died in 2001 or in 1982? In Cimitelli Betulieri in Nantes. The case had a huge impact on the community and was debated intensely by the intelligentsia. Some people considered that the murders had been the result of exploitation of the workers, considering that the maids worked 14-hour days and only had a half day off each week. Intellectuals empathized with the sisters' oppressive struggle of the social classes. Yeah. I'd lose my mind, too. 
So Especially if my time off meant I had to just go to church. They had a really rough time growing up, and then they lived that class struggle in capitalism every day until they gouged their boss's eye out and beat her to death, and her daughter, too. For two hours. For two That's hours, a lot man. of rage against the machine. It sure is. <laughs> Whew. Sarah, what are you talking about this week? Well, I need a minute, and I need to cleanse my palate. <laughs> After that... And what better to cleanse my palate, Stephanie? Speaking of palate cleansers, let's talk about it. Yeah. Our favorite palate cleanser of all, slash our favorite pick-me-up, Magic Mind. So it sounds like a magic mind. Yeah, right. Um. Yeah, my magic mind. Uh, My new box came in this week. I'm so excited. I accidentally let it lapse a little bit, so I had a few days without my magic mind, and I was really sad. And how are you feeling about it? I was sad about it, but now I got it back, so I feel way better. I love that for you. I know. I love it, too. I really feel like I've noticed a lot of the um, the focus benefits, especially through the long, the more that I use it, I use it, the more that I incorporate it into my diet on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy all the benefits from the mushrooms, the cordyceps, the nootropics that help give me the clarity while I do my research for what I'm going to talk about. And Yeah. They have a little thing on their, like, website where it's, like, what is this? How do you use it? And they talk about how, like, athletes have Gatorade. Like, athletes have, like, a athlete drink. And this is Creative Aid. This is, like, an artist's <laughs> beverage. That's cute. I like that. Creative Aid. Yeah. So it's, like, a little mm-hmm. – it'll help you with your with your mind grapes. <laughs> mind grapes? That's a thing from 30 Rock. Oh. It'll help you with your brain and how you focus and how you get things done and how you be creative and do stuff. And it's also mm-hmm. kind of yummy. And you can put it on ice. You can make it into like a little latte that, yes. that Sarah's been talking about doing. I bet you're so excited to do it now that you've oh, got some Now that I got back. my box back. Yep. So excited. I just like to take it like a shot, but a kind that's good for my brain instead of bad for my brain. Yeah. Because it is much better for your brain. It likes my organs. I bet I could mix it with vodka. Oh. Mm. No, don't do it. Don't do that. Don't do it. But do use our discount code to order some. Yeah, if you haven't gotten on this Magic Mind train, you really should because it's fantastic. And we have a code for you. So head on over to magicmind.co slash stories with a Z. You know the drill. And then if you want and you decide to purchase, you can get 40% off a subscription or 20% off your first order using code STORIES20. STORIES20. Love that. Yeah, go check it out. And tell us what you think. Tell us how it's been affecting you, if you like it, your thoughts, your feelings, and get over there. Use our codes. You can save some money and get you some magic mind. And using that code is how you tell them that Dead Time Stories sent you. Yeah, tell them Dead Time Stories sent you. They'll know what it means. Sarah, what are you talking about this week? Well, this week I have a true story turned Pennsylvania folklore. Do it. Yes, I will. And oh my gosh, yeah, it's a long one. I typed it out. It's not that bad. I didn't I say read, bad. I, I said long. Oh, she's like, it's a long one. She made a face, but you can't see it because we're on the podcast. Oh, geez, Louise. Now she's flipping me off. Are you mouthing? Oh, you're going to kill me. Okay. <laughs> no. Great. I'm, now I'm scared. <laughs> All right. So this is a uh, true story turned Pennsylvania folklore. And this is the story of Elizabeth and William Wilson. Do it. They are brother and sister. They're not married. Are they incestuous? Nope. Not at all. Okay. There is no incest. 
I was just like, I just talked in about this incestuous siblings that killed people. There is murder. Okay. And there is, I guess, trigger warning. We've talked about it before, though. There's child death. The Wilson family, Elizabeth William Wilson and their mom and dad, lived in Chester County. Uh, they think most likely in East Bradford or the West Bradford Township. So with this story, because it has turned into a folklore, we do have aspects that we know are historical. We have the documents. We know that. And then we have what's been passed down through storytelling, which is always really cool for the time. So a lot of this I'll be noting, you know, like sometimes the story says this, sometimes the story says that. That's what it is. We're moving on to the next point. So for this, sources are divided on how old Elizabeth uh, is was she's not alive anymore spoiler alert but some report that she was born in 1766 while others report that she was born in 1758 but that's the timeline that we're dealing with is the mid to end of the 1700s okay elizabeth was her parents only daughter and william their only son theirs was a farm family of modest means but solid reputation however during the american revolution they sided with the british and so a lot of their property was confiscated. Right? That's bad. Because a lot of their shit got stolen because <laughs> they lost. They picked the wrong side. Uh, much of their property was confiscated by American forces. Mrs. Wilson died while her children were still young, and the father later remarried. But his second wife, surprise, surprise, did not care for the stepchildren and urged him to send them away as soon as they sure. were of age. Sure, sure, sure. So what we know is that at 16, William went away and he apprenticed to a stone carver in Lancaster County. He's gone. And Olivia, Elizabeth's activities after leaving her father's house are less certain and locked down. Some accounts say that she was sent to work at the Indian Queen Tavern in Philadelphia. However, others say that she was just a little social butterfly and she was a regular at the Indian Queen Tavern. Either way, she's at the Indian Queen Tavern. She's at the Indian Queen Tavern. That's where she'd be hanging the fuck out. She's always described as being exceedingly beautiful and always surrounded by admirers. Classic. But as with other portions of her tale, there are several versions of how she met her man Mm -hmm. or her seducer. We don't like him in the end. Oh, I was going to say he seduced her? Yeah. Okay. In one, one telling, she was invited to a wedding in a nearby town in Delaware where she met a friend of the groom. Don't go, girl. I know, right? In several other tellings, she just met a man named Smith, either a native of Philadelphia or an officer from New Jersey. And still in others, she met a man identified as either Captain D or Joseph Deshong at the Indian Queen Tavern, her latest haunt. I keep, I know it's Indian Queen, but I keep thinking, and I don't know enough words to this song. I keep thinking of Acid Queen from Tommy, um, which I'm is. Not familiar at all. Uh, so Tommy was the musical that The Who wrote. And I don't know any of the songs from it. I just remember that David really loves Tommy. And there's a part with a woman who calls herself the Acid Queen, who's Tina Turner. Um, but what queen is this? Indian queen. Indian queen. I keep hearing in my head like, I'm the Indian queen. Which she's like, I'm the acid queen. Yeah, she's Tina Turner. The but- street that the theater where the one acts are that you're going to tonight is Indian Queen Lane. I love that for her. But this is Indian Queen Tavern, okay. which is way better. Either way, whatever his name was, Captain D, Mr. Man named Smith, I met at a wedding, whatever. This guy manipulated Elizabeth with false promises of marriage and, quote, unquote, 
succeeded in depriving her of all that could render her respectable in the eyes of the world. Damn. So he got her pregnant, and then he disappeared. Yeah. In one telling, she learns that her former lover has taken up with a wealthy widow in another city and has already become married to another woman. But, you know, sometimes people add that for extra drama. So Elizabeth remained at the Indian Queen, again, either working or frequenting as she could, until her pregnancy became obvious and she became the focus of scorn and gossip. Eventually, her presence became too great an embarrassment and she was forced to leave. Story goes that she hitched a ride on a farm wagon and headed back to her father's house. It's also said, here's another version, that she made the journey on foot, taking a week to reach her destination. In one telling, the children were born in a stranger's house along the way. But certainly the more dramatic account is that she walked all the way there and she appeared on her father's doorstep in labor. So disheveled that they didn't even recognize her. <laughs> they, they were like, I don't even know who this bitch is. This She's is just crazy. screaming about having a baby. Daddy. During the night, Elizabeth gave birth to twin sons. As soon as she was well enough to travel, Elizabeth returned to Philadelphia in search of her baby daddy, whom she found at the Indian Queen Tavern. Of course she did. He feigned happiness at seeing her. Oh, my God. What? He's like, I haven't seen no you. No way. You I were haven't pregnant? seen you in like nine it, months. It's, it, it's got to have been it's 10, been. 11 months. Got babies, be. they look what? One or, one or two months old? Yeah. It, uh, that's another discrepancy in the story. Some sure. say 10 days old. Some say 10 weeks old. Sure. However, like, he was like, look fresh. He was like, Oh, Hey girl, I haven't seen you in, where have you been? I haven't seen you in nine months and however old those babies are. I haven't heard from you. And again, he promised her that they would be married. Of course he fucking did. Elizabeth returned home and several days later headed out to meet her groom. He's what does he have? Like magic D or something. She said a captain D. She set out on the road to Newton Square, most likely the present-day Westchester Pike. Love it. She rode part of the way with a neighbor who left her sitting on a rock nursing her babies. Her two babies. Waiting, I guess, to hitch another a ride. Baby on each teat. And they say that the babies were anywhere from 10 days to 10 weeks following their birth. Sure. They were fresh. And then Elizabeth was not seen again for a little over a week. Damn. And when she reappeared, she was disheveled and incoherent and her children were nowhere to be found. Damn. In the coming days or weeks, a gruesome discovery was made. A hunter found the bodies of Elizabeth's twins hidden in the woods. The babies were immediately identified, and Elizabeth was quickly arrested. Several newspapers reported that Elizabeth's arrest took place in late December 1784, which would be roughly two and a half months after her children's death. However, other accounts suggest that the chain of events, the murder, the discovery, and the arrest took place over a much shorter period. So anywhere between three weeks and two months. Sure. An article in the January 1785 Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Mercury and General Advertiser reported under a dateline that a woman had been arrested about a week ago and that she denies the murder but acknowledged having placed the children by the roadside in order that any person passing that way who had humanity enough might take them up. But it's like, I guess in that time they didn't really have fire stations to right? like leave your baby to leave at. leave your baby at. 
Elizabeth Wilson was charged with the murder of her two illegitimate male children and imprisoned in the city of Chester's 4th Street Jail. When asked to enter a plea, Elizabeth did not respond. The judge entered a plea of not guilty on her behalf. In fact, at no time during the trial did Elizabeth speak in her own defense. Because of this, her counsel was unsure how to proceed. He requested that the trial be postponed until the fall season because Elizabeth wasn't talking, and the judge agreed. So the trial resumed in October of 1785. Attorney General Bradford's case was built primarily on circumstantial evidence, but Elizabeth, again, did not refute any of the charges against her. The jury deliberated for several hours before returning their verdict, and while many jurors felt sympathetic toward Elizabeth, they were charged to decide the case based on the evidence presented, and because of that, their decision was guilty of murder in the first degree. The judge had become sympathetic, but he too was bound to act according to the evidence presented in court, and he had little choice but to sentence Elizabeth to death by hanging. Sure. The date for the execution was set for December 7th, 1785. After the judge passed the sentence, Elizabeth's parents abandoned her. They were like, we don't know you. Don't ever call this number again. Don't talk to us. Now, throughout the trial and the preceding events, her pregnancy, the death, everything, her brother, William, was still away in Lancaster, and he hadn't heard of it. But when she was condemned to death... He heard about it. I think someone was like, yo, yo your, your sister's sister. in the paper. And he's like, oh, my God. What? Did she do something cool? And they're like, well, I don't know about cool. She's so, in the paper. Miss, uh, when she was condemned to death, William announced that he was needed in Chester and he left his job. He arrived at the jail on December 3rd, just four days before her hanging. After recovering from the shock of seeing her brother show up so unexpectedly, Elizabeth was finally willing to relate the details surrounding her children's murder. So she told her brother. So William hastily grabbed a whole group of respected officials, including the judge who had sentenced her, to witness Elizabeth's confession. Elizabeth explained that her seducer, Captain D, had agreed to meet her in Newton Square. However, he unexpectedly met her in a wood about 1.9 miles west of the town. He asked to see the babies, claiming that he wanted to see whether or not they looked like him. He ordered Elizabeth to then kill the children, and when he refused, or when she refused, he trampled them to death. He then held a pistol to Elizabeth's chest and made her swear that she would never reveal what he had done. The confession was signed by the witnesses and William presented it to the Supreme Executive Council on the 6th of December of 1785, the day before. Now, the president of this council was none other than good old Benny Franklin. Hey! Hey, Benny Frank! The Benny Franklin? The Benny Franklin! The very same. President of the council, Benjamin Franklin, and its vice president named Charles Biddle. The council had previously discussed Elizabeth's sentence back in November, and now they acted quickly to order that the execution be postponed until January 3rd to allow them more time to review the case. So they were successful, at least on their end, of saying like, hey, please just postpone it until January 6th. Yeah. So she got it postponed. In the meantime... Just save it for Interaction Day. William... I mean, because they already had the, they knew that they were going to have the guillot- or the the gallows up for Insurrection right. Day. So they're like, might as well do it the same day. Right. We're already going to have them up. 
We're already going to drain the swamp. <sighs> I don't want to talk about it. Remember the swamp? In the meantime, William, like a good brother, went in search of this fucking seducer baby daddy, yeah, baby killer. But when he found him in a New Jersey farm, the man denied ever having known Elizabeth. Elizabeth? I don't know her. You're goddamn right he did. Like William, a piece of shit. William then began to seek out witnesses who could link the man with Philadelphia and his sister, and he was successful in compiling a list of several people. So he was like, can you sign my petition that says that this asshole was in Philadelphia and got my sister pregnant. Excuse me. Will you sign my petition that says he's just going door to door to door? And they're like, a petition, it doesn't cost money, I'll sign it. However, unfortunately, William became ill around Christmas and spent some time recuperating at a friend's home in Philadelphia. And upon his next visit to the Chester jail, he was horrified to learn that Elizabeth's execution was scheduled for the following day. See, during his illness, he had lost track of time, and he thought that he had gone to visit her on January 1st, which meant she still had two more days. However, he had gone to visit her on January 2nd. So now he's like, fuck! Hops on his horse, and he rides to Benny Frank's home. He's like, we need another postponement of my sister's execution. But Benny Frank was like, I don't know, in the tub or something, and made William wait several hours to see him. Benny Frank felt that it was improper for him to act on this, and so then he referred to Vice President Biddle. So then William had to go find Vice President Biddle at the State House, and Biddle finally wrote the order, do not execute Wilson until you hear further from the council, knowing that the members of the Executive Council were sympathetic towards Elizabeth and did indeed to grant her full respite. So William got the pardon. He's like, thank you, great. And now he's running and he is beginning the 15 mile ride from Philadelphia to Chester. He um, approached the I'm middle ferry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, approached the middle ferry across the Schuylkill River. Heavy rain had made the river dangerously high and choked it with ice and debris. This was January. The ferry was not in operation. So in desperation, he drove his horse into the icy water of the fucking Schuylkill. The animal struggled against the current but drowned only 50 feet from the opposite shore. So William then swam the rest of the way to the opposite shore, and by the time he reached dry land, he was approximately 2.2 miles downstream from where he'd entered the water. So William, real quick, real quick, got another horse. I imagine he ran up, pushed somebody off, and was like, it's, it's the police business. Commandeering. And jumped on and was like, I gotta go. Found another horse, continued to Chester. Meanwhile... Officials in Chester are reluctantly beginning the preparations for Elizabeth's execution. Elizabeth spent the morning with several clergymen, received Holy Communion, and at 1030, she was moved from the jail to the hangman's lot. The sheriff of Chester was one of many who had come to believe that Elizabeth was innocent and who, following her confession, suspected that she might be pardoned. Because of that, he did station flagmen at intervals along the highway around leading from Philadelphia so that if they saw William coming, they could flag and be like, he's on his way with the pardon. Don't murder her. Don't kill her. So he stationed people all outside. So that even if William wasn't there right on time, but they saw him coming, I'm coming. They could they be like, could be like, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's like when you you've got somebody standing by your car and you didn't pay for the ticket and the PPA guy's right there and you're about to come out of the store and your friend is right there like my friend is coming he's out. Coming, right he's coming, he's coming out right now. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Look there, there he is right there. So that's what they're planning. Noon arrived, and the sheriff could wait no longer. 
The order was given and the cart that was below Elizabeth Warren's Wilson's feet was pulled out. She did not die outright. She did not. Her neck did not snap, but she showed little signs of struggle. Several long moments passed before the crowd noticed white flags waving along the road from Philadelphia. William rode to Hangman's lot calling, a pardon, a pardon. His horse reared at the sight of Elizabeth's body, throwing him to the muddy ground beneath his now dead sister. The sheriff quickly cut the rope and tried frantically to revive Elizabeth, but it was too late to save her. Varying accounts state that William arrived anywhere from mere moments after she passed to 23 minutes too late to deliver the pardon and save his sister's life. The vice president Biddle later wrote on his own, for my own part, I firmly believed her innocent. The next day when the council met and we heard of her execution, it gave uneasiness to many of the members, all of whom were against her being executed. Fat lot of fucking good they all did. They're all like, for for what it's worth, I didn't I, think, I, I didn't I didn't think, think she should have been No, should've never should have happened. No. Good fucking help. Thanks, man. Yeah, you really didn't do anything. Mr. Benjamin Franklin, who made William wait 30 minutes in the lobby and then said, ooh, I think this actually should go to the vice president instead. That's heard. As a result of this shock, William was in a state of delirium for many months. When he had gotten better, he declared that the wound caused by his sister's death would never heal and that he would quit human society altogether, which, like, honestly, William, I'm saying. Like, I feel that. I feel that. I feel that. So William began to wander across the countryside, eventually settling in a cave 12 miles from Harrisburg. This cave has now been traditionally identified as the Indian Echo Caverns and is a tourist site today. As it was a place of solitude back then, William decided to stay there for the rest of his life. He wrote frequently, usually on religious matters. He kept himself clean, but he grew a super big, long, white beard. Yeah. And because of that, he became known as the Pennsylvania Hermit. William lived in the cave for 19 years before dying in 1821. The story of the children's murder and Elizabeth's arrest was reported at least as far away as New Hampshire, and many different tellings and different pamphlets were later released telling the story. Though, like a modern game of telephone, each telling has different facts and details, and the Wilson story was sometimes turned around and used to teach lessons in traditional morality. One pamphlet was written about William called The Life of Amos Wilson. Uh, One of the other aspects of this story is that throughout the retellings, it changed the names of Elizabeth and William to Harriet and Amos. Sure. Which is just, I don't know where it came from. But the book about William contains this passage saying, You see by the foregoing pages the graduation of evils dependent on a departure from dignified modesty. So readers are admonished to turn your attention to those houses of debauchery where vice reigns triumphant and on whom poor mourning virtue sheds a tear of pity. Several sources also include dramatic extended quotes attributed to William and Elizabeth. But again, these passages sometimes seem to have more to do with moral instruction than with relating the factual story of William and Elizabeth Wilson. And as many exist only in a single source, their authenticity must be viewed skeptically. You can't take them for their truth. And a lot of times they're like, well, you know, if Elizabeth hadn't spread her legs, well, you know, if they had just done this thing, then William would have gotten there on time. So you need to make sure that you keep your shit together. 
Now, of course, this also led to ghost stories. And William is known as the Pennsylvania Hermit, which is a folklore about him living in the cavern. And they say that uh, Elizabeth is known as being a female spirit who walks through the woods of the East Bradford Township, which is, according to some sources, the spot where her children were found dead. And while early storytelling focused on Elizabeth's saga and the moral implications of her actions, lately, the current focus seems to then be on the sensational aspects of William's final ride, Elizabeth's execution, and then the strange circumstances of William's life in the cave. Yeah. As such, the story is sometimes resurrected by local media in connection with Halloween observances or as part of strange but true features. So Echo Caves, Indian Echo Caves, is still a tourist spot. They do say that it's haunted by the Pennsylvania Hermit, a ghostly specter with a long white beard. But that is the true story of Elizabeth and William Wilson in Chester, Pennsylvania, and how she shouldn't have been hung, but she was. Dang. Yeah. Pennsylvania has some weird execution hanging stories. I believe it. Because you remember Getters Island? I do. They, they I hung him never once. forget it. Every time you, you talk about somebody being executed... I always wonder if it's going to be like Getter's Island where they got tied to a thing and flung around. And then it didn't work. So it didn't work. And then they still just do had it to again. hang regular. Yep. It's good. It's okay. good stuff. <laughs> well, those are our stories this week. Those man. are our stories. I want to thank you so much for listening. Yes. You should support our podcast, which you already do by listening, but you can support it even more by doing things like joining our Patreon. We have different tiers with bonus content, cool shit that you can get every single month by subscribing to the Patreon. We also have merch you can buy from our website, Deadtime Stories with a Z. Dot com. There's cool stuff there, and we're really, really excited about all of... We have really neat merch, man. We have good merch. We have good bonus content. We do. We have a lot of fun stuff behind the paywall. We have a lot of cool, cool stuff behind paywalls. But you know what? <laughs> we also have a lot of cool stuff for free, like the show that you're listening to right now. Yes. And the best way that you can support us that doesn't cost you any money is to give us a five-star review in the Apple Podcast Store or Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, anywhere where you listen to podcasts, if you can give us a high review, that's how we get other people to listen to us. And you can, you know, put us in that algorithm and help our show. Yeah, help us out. That's it, man. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Ferguson. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman.